Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Prospect Magazine's podcast, Headspace, where we bring together prospect editors and experts pushing the question, what's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark and this week we will look at the great new global power, China. By some measures, it's already the biggest economy in the world. But if China is the new power in matters of commerce and military, what are the ideas that are going to go along with that? Well, I think we have to decide how how firmly we hold our values, how firmly we hold the values of academic freedom, of intellectual inquiry, of you know legal and civil and, and human rights, because those are being directly challenged by China. With me this week um, are Isabel Hilton, who's written an extended essay on China for our new magazine, alongside Kerry Brown of King's College London, who uh, is having a deep dive into how Australia is dealing with the rise of Beijing. And a little later on, we'll be hearing from Ron Amitter on the great thinkers of China's past. But first of all, um, Isabel, let me ask you, we talk a lot about China's rise, it's um, expanding navy, it's expanding economy. Um, is it really in a mood to be exporting ideas? Well, it's exporting some political positions uh, and making sure that others accept them, uh, that really by force majeure. In terms of exporting ideas, it's exporting the idea that uh, China is going to return to a position of preeminence. It's exporting the notion that this can be done in an entirely benevolent way, a win-win situation for the world. It's beginning to talk about China as a model for emerging economies. Beyond that, uh, in in the idea space, I would say that China was closing down ideas rather than expanding and exporting them. And we have had periods in recent history when there's been a tremendous expansion of ideas in China. In the 80s, for example, after after the, the, the death of Mao and when, when China was beginning to open up, there was a tremendous um, surge of intellectual curiosity because people had been shut off from the past, from their own history, and they'd been shut off from the outside world. And there was a, just a, a tremendous intellectual excitement about about redefining China, looking again at history, uh, looking again at lots of ideas that hadn't been discussable. And I think that, you know, with some stops and starts, things went along in a reasonably positive way. You had new waves of literature. You had uh, a a contemporary art scene that that grew almost out of nowhere. 
But then in the last five years, what we've seen is a, a shrinking of that space. And it's it's shrinking uh, because of the party, because of the, the party's reimposition of um, a dogma, of, a, of a, an ideological line, which um, has chosen to combat a lot of ideas that are now pretty widely accepted in China, but apparently no longer acceptable. Um, and those last five years, of course, are the, the five years of President Xi. And you talk in your piece about this, um, from about five years ago, this rather significant document nine, with a little list of seven things that she doesn't much like. Well, that was, I think, the first uh, clear sign that Xi Jinping's term in office was going to be was going to be different from what had gone before. And I remember being in Beijing um, before the party congress in which Xi Jinping became general secretary of the party at a conference in which a lot of Chinese businessmen and and policy people were asked what they hoped for from the next government. And it was a time when, you know, things were relatively relaxed intellectually, although there is, it's now judged as a period of stagnation and corruption. But nevertheless, um, what people were answered almost to a man on that that platform, there must have been about 12 Chinese, they said political reform. And that was what they hoped for, which was going to be, you know, the continuation of a path that China seemed to be set on, in which there was more space for non-party actors, so civil society, there was more legal space. The state became kind of normalized instead of being, you know, run entirely for the party interest. And that's what that group, a uh, group of you know eminent upright citizens, had hoped for. But when you saw Document Nine, it was quite clear that that was not going to happen because Document Nine essentially declares war on a set of ideas that the party sees as its major threats, and they include the rule of law, an independent judiciary, I should say, freedom of the press. Uh, You know, they're pretty much, they include civil society, they include human rights, they include pretty much the list of things. Constitutionalism, the idea that China should obey its own constitution, which is what Liu Xiaobo was imprisoned for. Um, So, you know, it was quite clear then that those people in China who had hoped that the path that had been followed up till then would continue, we're going to be very disappointed. And is it a bit strange that China took this turn then? After all, 2012, it could feel very confident. It had just come through the global financial crisis in much better shape than anyone else. Could it not have said, well, we've been on this sort of very broadly liberalising path for with stops and starts, but for 20 or 30 years and seems to be working what inspired this? Well, I think that China certainly took some negative lessons from the collapse of the USSR. And those negative lessons, you know, can be synthesized, you know, into the, you know, you don't have political reform without economic reform. So China did the economic reform, which is why the expectation was that the political reform would come eventually. But it also, they also took the lesson that, you know, if you allow too much independent space to things like civil society or think tanks or universities, then you have people who challenge your right to hold power forever. And the party, it would appear, still thinks that it needs to hold power forever. Now, you could say, well, there are some sound reasons for that, because China 
in, throughout the 20th century was, you know, a mess of warring factions. And actually, it it was it was only in 1949 when Mao succeeded in establishing the uh, the People's Republic, and then imposed an ideology that there was a kind of unifying idea. Because China, you know, it's an old civilization, but it's a very young country, and post-imperial China has had a lot of trouble finding an identity that is coherent for all its citizens and which doesn't imply sharing power for the Communist Party. That's quite tricky. Kerry, in, in your piece, we'll come on to the detail of, of, of the Australian connection, but just impressionistically on um, China itself, um, you sort of give the impression that you think actually it's a kind of rather worldly kind of maybe quite flexible and pragmatic in the way it deals with the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, as Isabel said, China's interested in exporting ideas about itself. So I don't think it wants to change our ideas about ourselves, I mean, and our politics. But it now has the kind of leverage, you know, economically to uh, put pressure uh, on strategic points elsewhere where it can change views of it. Um, sometimes that works. Uh, so Australia, obviously, there are points of influence. Sometimes they try and buy politicians, so that doesn't work because it gets found out. But I think it, it kind of goes kind of deeply into the way that we think about the impact China has. We're kind of setting, second guessing the, you know, what what are the what are the negatives if we say no to China? I mean, I think it's like about self censorship sometimes. So, you know, you you kind of get often people doing research who are more careful. You can't say it's explicit, but they're not really looking very hard at things in Xinjiang or Tibet, you know, sensitive areas like that. But also, I think it's um, hard to have a very open debate about China in our environment where you're not second-guessing what China might do to sort of um, get involved in that discussion and um, not punish. I mean, sometimes it will punish, but, you know, really kind of take action. Uh, if, for instance, politicians talk about China in a certain way in the UK, Will that have an impact on Chinese investment here? So it's a subtle game, but it's certainly going on. I mean, we sort of saw that when Theresa May got in, not knowing much about diplomacy before she did, and she tried to unpick George Osborne's Hinkley Point nuclear deal, didn't she? And that review that was meant to kill it lasted about a week, I think, before it revived it. So uh, I'm an academic, I'm afraid. This is a, a sort of almost like a confessional. And um, I was looking at... Uh, works around about the time of Sunzi's Art of War, about 3,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago. And a lot of the time, um, it is about picking on your enemy's doubt. <laughs> you know, doubt is a very important thing. And from very early on in strategic culture in China, it's about identifying doubt in your opponent. And I think that's sort of what Chinese still does. It's sort of finding that we're very self-questioning about ourselves and its posture at the moment in terms of nationalism is very strong. It's like China has a conviction. You know, Chinese people have a conviction. They might not be communists, but they're pretty strong nationalists. And our sort of sense of, you know, strength is probably more self-reflexive and, and doubtful. And I think that's often where Chinese are able to kind of speak to. Um, unity in China is created through repression, but it kind of works because people don't dare say anything. We are um, perplexed and confused, you know, the Enlightenment West, if you want to call it that. Um, you know, we we are weak because of what we think we're strong about, which is our self-reflexiveness. And I think the Chinese, in a sense, in this, this moment, have been quite good at exploiting that. 
um, and creating from our doubts about our own sort of stability um, and our own kind of uh, you know future direction, Brexit and things like that, um, areas of opportunity, particularly Brexit. I mean, Brexit is creating all sorts of uncertainty and China is certainly working into that and saying, we're going to be your big friends, but... <laughs> does that sound right to you, Isabel? Yes, it does. And I think that the I, I, what, what slightly worries me about this country, among quite a few things that worry me, is that I think that people don't really appreciate the cost of that friendship. Um, and you have seen Theresa May on, on her last trip to China, for example, being asked to sign a blanket approval of the Belt and Road Project and declining. I mean, it's a bit... It, imagine if Britain, with a smaller trading partner, said, well, we'll trade with you, but only if you sign this um, pledge always to uphold Britain's claim to Gibraltar or the Falkland Islands. You know, it's not something that Britain would do, but that China does that all the time. It's absolutely routine, the one China policy, which is now being pursued not only with governments, but it's being pursued with, you know, hapless hotel groups who find on their website that there's a reference that the that hurt the feelings of the Chinese people, as the Chinese would put it, and are having to issue groveling apologies. Airlines, you know, any company that tries to do business in China is now being forced to adopt uh, positions which are, you know, not something that companies would normally have to do in support of Chinese policy. You mentioned in your piece about Marriott Hotel having to... <laughs> issue a grovelling apology about someone and something an employee had done even though that employee was in the United States. Uh, who lost his job. And he lost his job and um, it brought to my mind um, uh, just, uh, seems a long time ago now, but in the snow I was like stuck um, uh, because of um, the snow at Heathrow and had to go to the Holiday Inn. Two newspapers on the desk, one is the I and the other one is China Daily which um, you two will have read before, I hadn't read before but about eight stories on the front, four or five of them. The first paragraph is about President Xi, and one of them was headlined, um, World Leaders Line Up to Give President Xi Their Congratulations. Um, so many things I was interested in there, like, you know, just the fact that a Western hotel in London is giving this thing out. But also, like, I mean, I, Chinese people are people like any other. They don't want to be reading this rubbish about how great the state media thinks the state leaders are, do they? Well, you might, you might. Uh, it's hard to tell, quite honestly. I think some people like, certainly like to think that, that, you know, she's making China great again. Who doesn't like that if you're Chinese? Um, after all, there are quite a lot of people in the US who've fallen for an even dodgier version. Um, but, uh, but China Daily is part of a, a, a soft power push, if you like, that China has been engaged in pretty much since the Beijing Olympics. And, and China got a shock at the Beijing Olympics because it had planned this tremendous kind of display of, of, of Chinese soft power. Uh, the, the biggest, longest uh, tor international torch relay in history, bit of a hostage to fortune because you may recall that torch relay kept being ambushed by uh, Tibet supporters staging demonstrations, as is their right, you know, hanging large banners from the Golden Gate Bridge and so on. And the Chinese were outraged. And they uh, that year also there was an uprising in Tibet, you may recall, where very few foreign correspondents could get there. Uh, a number of mistakes were made in copy or misidentification of photographs um, because, because there weren't any journalists on the ground. Um, and this was interpreted by China as a Western media conspiracy against China. Um, 
having spent my life in Western media, I can tell you they don't conspire easily. You know, they don't really cooperate in that way. But China resolved that that its response needed to be to set up its own media to tell its own story. That if Western media wouldn't tell the China story properly, then China would do it. It invested enormously in multilingual broadcasting and radio and television, in print, and also in investing in partnerships with now cash-strapped Western media. So, for example, you'll see... Uh, the Washington Post will publish a supplement, which is um, which is a China Daily supplement. Then there are investments in a whole range of Chinese language overseas Chinese media, which is aimed at keeping the overseas Chinese kind of on message. And a lot of these are, you know, not public. They're done through shell companies, so you wouldn't know that actually there was a, a, a mainland hand in those broadcasting stations or in those newspapers. Now, the content, um, it's its pretty tricky. For example, when China announced that it was going to, uh, you know, it was essentially going to set up its own television um, network, which would be like Al Jazeera. Two things happened. One, the Al Jazeera correspondent in Beijing wrote a very long and interesting piece about why China broadcasting was not Al Jazeera and what the key differences were. Um, But about a week after this was launched, Liu Xiaobo won the Nobel Prize. Now, Liu Xiaobo was in prison and he was a public intellectual who'd been imprisoned for a, a crime of opinion. Um, So what do you do if you're trying to compete with international media in the international media market? This is a the Nobel Peace Prize is a global story. So if you are the unlucky editor of the day, you have a choice between running the story about your shop or winning the Nobel Peace Prize and being fired or not running it. And, you know, exposing the fact that you are a, a mouthpiece of the Communist Party of China. It's not an easy situation to be in. And China soft power is a real problem. It's not attractive. It's, you know, the party line with a very heavy hand. Mm. Um, but it's it's well financed and it's now ubiquitous. Um, Isabel talks in her piece, Kerry, a lot about... Um, like the instruments of that soft power. And so there's quite a lot about how the emigres are being stirred up, stirred up to um, swing behind the party line. But most particularly, you're fresh here from a, from a university, the building of all these Confucius institutes uh, in, I think, a dozen universities in the UK and many, many more um, in uh, uh, the United States. And I'm sure plenty in Australia, because that, you say, has got one of the most... Um, um, biggest populations of um, Chinese students. Have you, have you come across any sign of influence of China in, in that sort of way in academic or teaching life? Yeah, I mean, globally, I think there are about 600 Confucian inst- Confucius Institutes. Um, so it's it's a lot of money. Hanban is the kind of organisation in Beijing that promotes these. And I think the funding model is usually they give half the money and then the host university gives half the money. Symbolically, though, they're interesting because... You know, a confident power would just buy an, a sort of space in a high street and put British Council or Alliance Francaise or Goethe Institute. And I think it, it's healthier. The weird thing about Confucius Institutes is they're parasitical on, you know, institutions, universities, which China often has quite an antagonistic relationship with. Um, they're almost kind of creating, they're, they're sort of there sometimes to create problems because for universities, 
if you've got a Confucius Institute, then you have to think a little bit differently about whether you host the Dalai Lama, whether you host, you know, a kind of delegation of activists from Xinjiang or, or associated with Xinjiang, these sorts of things. And I think that might be part of the thinking behind them. Um, in practice, um, so in America, a lot of them are being closed down now. Chicago, I think, is closing its um, Confucius Institute. In practice, it depends on their leadership. Uh, so some are very active and do interesting work, uh, mostly cultural, language learning. So in the UK, a lot is language learning. Um, so they, there's a difference between their symbolic kind of presence, which I think is confusing, not confusion, but confusing, and their kind of um, reality, which is that there is a critical need in this country, for instance, as we go towards Brexit, to learn Chinese, to get culturally attuned to China and to sort of... And yet we don't have, you know, teaching of Chinese at schools. Our A-level in Chinese is awful. Uh, you know, all sorts of things we could do. These things could be useful, <laughs> but they're not really fit for purpose. So it's a pity. It's a pity. It's, um, it gets us now into, I think, more of a substance of, of your essay, Kerry, which is really about... Um, that balance of the useful, which at the moment in a world where, you know, China's might keeps rising, is doing business deals with China and the uncomfortable, which um, will tell us a bit about that and how it's played out in Australian politics. This question of what does Chinese power look like is um, one that's been looming for the last 20 years, basically. And Australia is the sort of front line in a way. If you're a mature democracy with rule of law, you know, Australia is the closest, in a sense, to China's influence. Um, its population isn't huge. Uh, strategically, it's quite vulnerable, you know, a massive coastline with a navy of about 27,000, you know, soldiers. So very reliant on America for security. So China sort of creates all sorts of quandaries for Australia that I think are unique, um, uniquely sharp, but are going to come our way. Um, so Australians will have to regard the Asian region economically as China's, but strategically and security-wise, you know, still dominated by America. They have to live in this sort of dual-track world. And I think in all sorts of other ways, you know, Australian universities have 250,000 Chinese students. I mean, British have about 150,000. Um, pro rata, that's huge. Um, my old university, the University of Sydney, have a population of 40,000, I think, Chinese students. Um, has seven and a half thousand, uh, sorry, 40,000 students has seven and a half thousand that are Chinese. So uh, the paradox for that kind of situation is that as a liberal institution supporting free speech and all the rest of it, your biggest funder that you cannot say no to is a one-party state. If, if the University of Sydney's website, for instance, or another university like that in China were to be blocked by the Chinese government, uh, in theory, a fifth of your funding would be gone. And, I mean, Kerry gets into as well things like high-speed rail, which Australia doesn't have any of them, and quite like some of them. There's plenty in um, China, of course, and uh, all sorts of other infrastructure projects that it might be nice to have, and China's got the savings to pay for them. But um, if, and maybe Australia will, where Australia goes first, Brexit Britain will follow, if, if, if we do take the... Um, opportunity, Isabel, what kind of cost would you anticipate? Well, we have already one problem, which you mentioned earlier, and which is Hinkley Point C. Now, Hinkley Point, which um, a, a, a ludicrously expensive, overblown uh, nuclear power plant, which Theresa May looked at when she first came into office and tried to cancel, and was pretty much 
told she couldn't, um, and so it wasn't cancelled. Now, having um, the Chinese invest in Hinkley Point C, it, it's an enormous white elephant that we'll be paying for for decades. The next phase, uh, which is part of the deal, is that China build and operate nuclear power stations in this country. It seems to me that that is to make a 40-year bet, not only on nothing going wrong between the UK and China, but nothing going wrong between the UK's closest ally or allies and China. That's not a bet I would make at this point. So to have China operating parts of the UK's critical infrastructure seems to me to be a security risk that hasn't been properly thought out. So the, the, the kind of thing you're meaning is if things got bad enough, they could switch off the lights? Well, crudely put, yes. Um, and indeed, since we have um, Chinese telecoms equipment throughout our digital infrastructure now, out of sheer carelessness, according to the report from the uh, Commons Intelligence Committee, um, you know, they're in a pretty good position to apply pressures to Britain at a moment of crisis, should there be one, uh, that we have little defence against. Now, that's kind of at the dramatic end. At the less dramatic end, um, I, I have, for my sins, just been reading the report of the 301 investigation from the United States into China's trade practices. And it's extremely illuminating reading. And, and if you look back through China policy documents on the next phase of China's industrial strategy, it is to move up the technology value chain, which is fair enough. But the means by which China is doing it is part of this asymmetry, which is a theme I think that's been running through this conversation, just as, you know, small Australia, big China is in a dilemma. Um, anyone who wants access to the Chinese market is forced to transfer technologies. Um, China's deep pockets are being used to acquire advanced technologies by purchasing Western companies. Again, we're open economies. We have few defenses against that. So forced transfer of technology, leaving aside industrial espionage, which also goes on. But even what's, what's you know written as part of China's policy represents a, a serious challenge to the future of advanced economies. And I don't, again, you know, as a vulnerable post-Brexit country, I think we are in a very, very vulnerable situation. We must start to wrap things up. But Kerry, just on Australia briefly, I mean, I think for all the anxieties that you talk about and, and the political rails that they've already been, your message is get your ideas about yourself straight as a country, know who you are and then go and get the best you can out of China. So we're back to doubt. Um, so Australia does have doubt about its being an Asian country. And China has closed all sorts of questions. So to me, that's an opportunity. So now Australia must urgently answer the questions about its identity. What is it? I mean, it's not a European country. It's an Asian country. And so it's got to have a narrative about how it wants to deal with China. Because as we're all learning um, in the UK and elsewhere, you know, China has a narrative about us. What's our story back? Uh, and if it's always telling stories that we're just listening to, we're going to be somewhat passive. And finally, Isabel, just looking at that then from a, a British point of view, what should we be telling ourselves before about ourselves before we go into the negotiating room with China? You know, what, what, what do we really need to hang on to? And Well, I think we have to decide how how firmly we hold our values, how firmly we hold the values of academic freedom, of intellectual inquiry, of, you know, legal and civil and, and human rights, because those are 
being directly challenged by China. There's there's one aspect of Document 9, just to go back to that, which is uh, the criticism of what China calls historical nihilism. Now, what does that mean? It means not telling the party's version of history. It means telling a version of history that is open and, and you know, for, open to investigation, open to challenge, as history should be. Um, but that's now functionally illegal in China. It was made illegal at the end of the last parliamentary uh, session, which which just closed. And the Confucius Institutes, operating on academic campuses throughout the world, uh, have a clause in the contract which commits them to obeying Chinese law. So what does that mean for history departments? These are the questions we have to ask ourselves. Are we really prepared to defend our own values and how much do those values mean to us? Well, perhaps we should never forget, Isabel, that it is his story. Um, But for now, let's leave that and now hear from Rana Mitter, who's an Oxford academic with a series Chinese Characters, which is currently airing on BBC Radio 4. He's written some little pen portraits of great thinkers, ancient and modern, who've helped to make China what it is. Rana, I suspect um, if anyone can help us out on um, the one Chinese philosopher that most people, even in the UK, will have heard of, it's probably Confucius. And I wondered if you could tell us what the essence of his message was and uh, how important or not he still is uh, in the mind, if you like, of modern China. I'd say, Tom, that if you wanted to choose one person who has done more to shape Chinese ways of thinking over the period of two or even two and a half millennia, it's probably Confucius. There are, of course, other great thinkers in the Chinese tradition. We may yet end up talking about some of them for a a little bit. But Confucius is really the one who has provided the ethical, social basis for Chinese thinking for a very long period. And that's true to some extent even today. Um, Some of his basic ideas would seem very familiar to a modern thinker, even from the West. Some of them seem out of place in the modern world. So amongst the various things that he was trying to instill in terms of behaviour and and ethical uh, ways of of being include the idea of reciprocity, that you behave to others, you hope they behave to you, the idea that essentially one should undertake self-improvement, as he says, at various stages of your life, at the age of 40, at the age of 60, beyond that, you get closer and closer to being a gentleman, as he would put it, a junza, or if you're really kind of doing it hard, then becoming a sage. So the idea of greater learning, greater wisdom being part of development, self-development, that's all very Confucian. It doesn't sound too out of place in our own world of of self-help and self-improvement. But there are other ideas of Confucius that to the modern mind sound less obviously congruent. So that's the idea that hierarchies and rituals are an essential part of the way that we should live. In other words, relationships are not necessarily, in fact, they very rarely are equal or flat. Uh, So sovereigns rule over subjects. Men, I'm sorry to say, rule over women. Parents have authority over children. And very few of these relationships are essentially flat. They are mostly the idea that a hierarchical society is an ordered and peaceful society. And many of these ideas, of course, changed in many ways over thousands and thousands of years, have remained very central to the way in which China thinks about itself. So um, a lot of that, um, Rana, sounds, um, well, some of it sounds like it could be useful to um, the authoritarians running China today in terms of authority and people knowing their place. But a lot of it sounds extremely um, benign and that people are thinking, uh, should be thinking about their own 
um, improvement and doing so with an eye on uh, relationships and achieving harmonious relationships and so on. Is there anything else in older Chinese thinking um, that um, might um, give us, um, uh, in which we might be able to find some roots for what people might see as the harshness or the cruelty of some of the way that China's been ruled um, over the last uh, uh, period since 1949? Well, I would point out, first of all, um, as we all know, Tom, that China isn't the only country that's had some pretty harsh government since 1945 or 49. Amongst the countries off the top of my head I could think of would be the Soviet Union, Spain, uh, you know, Vietnam, Mexico. So China isn't by any means unique in having had some pretty harsh government. But there are cultural roots to some of what we've seen. And you're right that Confucius is perhaps, you know, the, the most overwhelmingly important thinker. But by no means is he the only one who has, from the ancient days, actually influenced the way the Chinese think. So I won't go through an entire catalogue of, of Chinese thinkers, but one or two high points in that uh, panoply of thinking that might be worth knowing about. So Confucius, and one of the f philosophers who came after him, Mencius, a few hundred years later, essentially believed in the goodness of humans. Yes, humans could be corrupted, but basically their nature was good. Now, another thinker, Shunzi, believed actually quite strongly that this wasn't necessarily the case, that the nature of human beings actually was, if not necessarily evil, at least potentially much more, more downbeat, more corruptible. And this was something that had to be sorted out through behaviour and training and so forth. And then someone like Han Fei, or Han Feidze, as he's sometimes known, is, is, is sometimes known as the father of what's called the school of law, or the legalist school. This is really the idea that human behaviour is almost incorrigible unless it's really coerced, um, a view that maybe thinkers like Thomas Hobbes and much later on in, in the Western tradition might have, uh, have taken as, uh, as being important because they would say, okay, actually human behaviour is something that um, does need to be forced and coerced into behaving correctly. And you could argue that some of the harsher parts of um, uh, Chinese governance perhaps draw more on that legalist tradition than the uh, essential ethical goodness that underlies Confucian or Mencian thinking. Rana, so we've discussed um, the uh, greats of the ancient period, if you like. Could you just tell us a little bit about how the always avowedly kind of modernist, forward-facing uh, Chinese Communist Party has dealt with these um, great minds over the years? Well, CCP stands for Chinese Communist Party, but I've sometimes joked with, you know, friends in China who work in, in policy areas that maybe it should rename itself the Chinese Confucian Party. Now, I don't think it's actually going to do that, but I think there is an argument to suggest that there is more of an engagement, more of a sort of fruitful dialogue, at least fruitful from the party's point of view, between China's philosophical past and thinking in the present day. So there is no doubt that the Chinese Communist Party still believes very strongly in Marxism. Just last week, on Karl Marx's 200th birthday, the city of Trier in Germany was gifted a massive bronze statue of Karl Marx from the Chinese Communist Party as a sort of birthday present. So they're still very dedicated to that idea. But in terms of drawing much more on the cultural heritage, the repertoire that comes from traditional Chinese philosophy, this is something that is much more popular in China today. There are thinkers out there who are looking at ideas such as the ability to create a sort of highly 
collectivized entity in which people feel a sense of common purpose by drawing on some of these uh, older ideas that are drawn from Confucius, drawn from uh, later thinkers as well, um, you know, neo-Confucian thinkers of the medieval era. Um, and I think there's going to be more, not less, concentration on trying to tap the existing repertoires of Chinese thought as they look to kind of reshape Chinese thought for the 21st century. Rana, if we turn to some of the minds you've written about for us who are, who are shaping um, modern China, um, one um, uh, writer I suspect many people might not have heard of is Ding Ling. Tell us about her and why you've included her. Ding Ling is probably China's single most important feminist author of the modern era. She lived through most of the 20th century. Uh, she only died in 1986. And her life was both exciting and in some ways very tragic. She was someone who created a variety of characters through fiction, but fiction that was widely read in elite circles, so not even such elite circles, it spread more widely, and expressed sort of archetypes about the changing nature of Chinese womanhood. So in the 1920s, she invented a character called Sophie, who essentially was, was wracked by sexual longing in a way that seemed in some ways very unusual, very improper almost, to uh, the Chinese society at the time. So it was a sort of declaration of female independence, you might, uh, you might say. And then in the 1940s, during the Second World War years, she creates a character called Purity, uh, which is an ironic name, because in fact she's a young woman sent as a spy behind Japanese lines during the Sino-Japanese War, the uh, World War II phase in, in, in China. And she sort of sacrifices her sexual purity in service of, of the national agenda by becoming a spy and, you know, finding out secrets inside the, the camp while um, uh, pretending to be a sex worker. So these sorts of dilemmas of womanhood and the, the dilemmas of individual feminist attainment versus the kind of wider national project very much spoke to something that's still relevant in China today. If, if you talk to many professional Chinese women in the current era, they say, we have more money, we have more job opportunities, but we're still being pressured to have children, get married, you know, kind of create a next generation. And the state has a very sort of pro-marriage and, and, and birth sort of agenda going on. So the kind of feminist battles that Ding Ling um, fought through her fiction through the 20th century still have quite a lot of valency in the 21st. And I thought that she's a good author for people to read to try and understand a bit of the historical background to, to that question of today. So throwing off a bit of Confucianism there, maybe. And then you also talk about these two chaps, Wang Huning, who's a political theorist, and He Zhang Hong, if I got the um, pronunciation. Yeah, two, two very interesting characters, Wang Huning and He Jiahong, uh, slightly, slightly different sorts of characters, but both very interesting. Wang Huning is a man at the top of Chinese politics. He's one of the seven members of the Politburo Standing Committee. I mean, if you think about the Brexit inner cabinet, even more powerful than, than that. These are the guys who basically, Xi Jinping, the president of China, of course, is one of them, who basically decides what goes uh, in, in Chinese politics. And Wang Huning has one of the most important portfolios, which essentially is thinking about the ideological changes that are happening in China today. Xi Jinping has made it very clear that there's going to be what he calls a Chinese dream, Zhong Guomang, uh, which uh, is uh, you know, a little take on the American dream, obviously, but the Chinese dream is, is different. Economic growth, prosperity, greater power for China in the outside world, and no democratization at all. That, that, that's definitely not on the Chinese dream agenda. So Wang Huning is the guy who's got to theorize it, talk about it, think about it, find ways in which the lived reality of uh, Chinese uh, economic inequality, uh, environmental problems, a whole variety of the crises of capitalism can be theorized and explained and, and dealt with. 
Ho Jia Hong is um, someone who is primarily an academic, but also a very influential one. He teaches at the uh, School of Law at Renmin University in Beijing. Uh, he has written very extensively on, his, on, on various legal subjects, but one is criminal appeals. Now, many people will have, for good reasons, a rather negative view, perhaps, of the Chinese legal system. And, the, you know, with human rights and so forth, there are many reasons to think that. But Ho Jia Hong's work shows that there is... Um, reform that can be done within the system. He did immensely important work on criminal appeals, people who've been put on death row and then, you know, it's found that their cases were unsound and the verdicts were reversed. And that kind of work is the kind of thing that legal academics can do in China to try and change what have often been, you know, very harsh realities within that system. One other reason I thought I'd just um, flag up Her Jia Hong, he's got a, a wonderful uh, second string to his bow. He's a murder mystery writer and quite a lot of his murder mystery novels are available in English uh, um, and uh, give a rather nice insight into a lightly fictionalised view of the way that the law operates in China. So then, Rana Mitter, I'm sure it's hard to sum up, but where does Chinese thinking go next? It's hard. Uh, well, I give you the famous saying that uh, former Prime, uh, Chinese Prime Minister Zhou Enlai may never have said, which was when he was asked about the French Revolution, said, it's too early to tell, you know, 200 years on. I don't think it is too early to tell, but there are signs of what's emerging and they may yet go in, in certain directions. One of them is a clear statement by China, and this certainly came out in Xi Jinping's big statement after the Party Congress in, uh, at the Party Congress in October of last year, that China is no longer going to hide its geopolitical light under a bushel. It is going to be out in the world, it's going to be expanding its influence. Now, before anyone panics, this doesn't necessarily mean uh, a military presence. China is projecting its military, its navy in particular is growing, but I would say that at the moment what we see is a much more tightly integrated economic project. The so-called Silk, New Silk Road project, One Belt, One Road, the Belt and Road Initiative, which is going to, if it all comes off, bring something like 8 trillion US dollars worth of infrastructure between Central Asia, Southeast Asia, that whole area, moving the centre of economic gravity much closer to Beijing in the whole Eurasian region. So that's one geostrategic aim that's definitely on the agenda. In terms of domestic politics, China is going to turn itself into a highly wired, highly electronically responsive authoritarian state. It's made it very clear it's not looking to liberalise, that's not on the agenda, but the idea that it will both gather huge amounts of data from its citizens and use big data to be able to kind of surveil society, but also use that in responsive mode to try and think about how welfare payments, pensions, healthcare, a whole variety of issues which could be enabled by big data might operate. And it's going to be a fascinating, if at times perhaps rather worrying, social experiment in how a combination of authoritarian government and very, very high levels of technological achievement can create a very different sort of domestic society from what we see in the liberal world. Uh, that's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening. My thanks also to our guests, Isabel Hilton, Kerry Brown and Rana Mitter. Um, I'm Tom Clark. The producer was Jay Elwells. And you can read all of these fabulous pieces um, and much more at our website, www.prospectmagazine.co.uk. And do check out our special China issue, um, which also contains magnificent pieces on the World Cup and its imminent demise and Jeremy Corbyn's foreign policy. Thanks very much for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 